Welcome to Meaning What. I'm your host, Mason Hirschenau. In this month's Movie Club installment, Chris, Sean, and I discuss the 2016 Oscar winner for Best Picture, Moonlight. Its themes of masculinity, blackness, queerness, and what stories need to be told. Hello, Sean and Chris. Hello, hello. Hey, y'all. It's time for our movie club again. Yes. Indeed. Our second installment, in case you missed the first one, every month this year we are taking a week and visiting a film chosen by one of us or by a guest and just having a discussion about it from a, a wide range of different film types and concepts. This month's film, in honor of Black History Month, and also just in honor of it being a very important film that I don't think any of us had seen yet, Mm-mm. we watched 2016's Moonlight. Chris, you picked out this movie, correct? I did, yeah. it's uh, It had been on my list for quite some time, especially after... It won Oscar in 2017, and there's a whole debacle at the Oscars with Moonlight and La La Land, which is really interesting just considering what Moonlight's about and La La Land being like an all-white cast and stuff like that. You know, So this was something that I felt would be something important for us to watch, and boy, am I glad that I finally got around to watching it. Moonlight is a coming-of-age tale directed and co-written by Barry Jenkins about a black man in Florida and later Atlanta going through three stages of his life, youth, adolescence, and then adulthood. And it explores the troubles that he finds himself in dealing with his blackness, his sexual identity, as well as poverty and drugs and how all those kind of intersect to turn him from the boy he was into the man he winds up being. Mm -hmm. Well, shall we just jump right in? I don't see why not. (laughs) Right. So it's broken up into three parts of trick pitch that I guess it's the easiest is to explore each chunk and then kind of explore the film at large. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the first part we have it's uh, titled Little, and this is when we're first introduced to Tyron, and it follows him as he kind of navigates this life that he finds himself in, but also that we find him in as well. One thing that I noticed throughout the film, but especially in this first part, that it's very, very poetic in the sense that everything kind of seems to be very, very important and purposeful in a lot of ways in that there's a lot that's happening in the film whether you're looking at expressions or the lack of dialogue or the lighting or as we mentioned before the film the way in which it was shot to mimic certain kinds of film stock all are very purposeful and intentional to kind of tell a very specific kind of story without being too explicit much in the same way I feel like poetry where not only every word but every syllable has to have some kind of importance to that overarching meaning that the author is attempting to get across i feel the same way with the co-writers of this film in the in the beginning part they're setting the stage and laying this groundwork for what's going to happen during the rest of the film and very very meticulous and beautiful every single ounce of it yeah and i like that it kind of recontextualizes a story that it's about poor black people in film may have certain associations of how that film would come across in your head mm-hmm. or how it traditionally does, but it is pulling from quote unquote art house techniques to kind of recontextualize its importance and kind of the gravitas of the story or how, how we should feel in mm-hmm. the mood, especially in the first part I would the, I found it really interesting. There was a lot of use of not a lot of music and a lot of just ambient sound. And I thought it, 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 it felt like real and lived in without being pretentiously. So. Yeah. And it's interesting that you mentioned that because during the title screen, like when we see a 24 and as Juan rolls up in the caddy, like we're met with, you know, this, 
kind of almost like a little bit of an expectation that it might just be like another hood film, you know, where he rolls up, there's rap music on, and then he turns off the ignition. And then we kind of don't really get that same sense, at least musically, throughout a much of the rest of the film until we get to the third part. Yeah, it was really interesting to me how the soundtrack of the film, because music plays a, a large part in a lot of the storytelling in a way that isn't necessarily unique as far as filmmaking goes, I mean, but it is done so where there isn't a whole lot of just background music. Almost all of the music, at least that you really notice, is part of the world. It's coming through somebody's radio, it's coming over a jukebox, it's coming over, you know, whatever. There's an explanation for it there. And I think that that is kind of a really specific example of how every single element in this film from start to finish not only serves a purpose, but is an active participant. There, There's no part of this movie that feels like filler or every single moment is important and sort of pregnant with meaning and, and symbolism. Not to the point that it's exhausting, but to the point that it just you don't feel like it's holding your hand, but it also never feels like you are left there sort of wondering what you're looking at and why you're looking at it. And I feel like that opening shot where Mahershala Ali's character pulls up in the car, he has his music playing and he cuts the engine and it cuts the music and he gets out and it sweeps across the street as he approaches this secondary character. It really like very quickly establishes all of those ideas. Like Mm -hmm. by the time that conversation starts, you know that you're watching the kind of movie where there is very little wasted air right away. You know what you're kind of getting into. I felt like, Oh yeah. Especially as it's all like one long shot. And it's something that's kind of seen a lot during the rest of the movie where like the camera just circles and circles and circles, which has its own kind of metaphorical implications as well. But this kind of, long shot that establishes very firmly like kind of what you're getting into and really kind of helps set the stage and set expectations but also just slightly subverting them just a touch too yeah and that that editing um in particular is like you always notice when there's a cut Mm -hmm. or or you really feel a lot of the cuts and a lot of times when that happens, it's it's because something's gone wrong, right? The editor makes a choice and it, it's uncomfortable. Um, but the way that this this film is edited, it could almost have been done in the series of all long shots, and that would have felt pretty appropriate. But there, are, it's not afraid to linger on painful things or mm-hmm. on awkward things or on heavy topics, and and sort of keep the camera rolling and moving around and really dragging those moments out. And then in moments of joy, it's not afraid to like cut away and cut moments short. And it builds this sort of rhythm that really feels believable, right? Like the long painful moments of adolescence and um, high school especially, and then the the quick bursts of joy that, that you find in sort of unexpected places. Yeah, I think what really struck me about this is how and this is really hard to do, but this film knows what, and and the people making it know what it has that are exceptional, right? And it uses them almost painfully sparingly. Mahershala Ali oh, God. in particular, who's mm-hmm. only in the movie for... 10, 15 minutes at most. Yeah, for this first act, really. And it's funny because he, that that's the face that I associated with the film, right? Like... He was the the recognizable person in it, although watching it, like, I recognized some other people. But, like, he was sort of the figurehead of it, and he's barely in it, but he still carries his powerful weight. And we can talk about the symbolism of that in a little bit. But he's there for a moment, and he is, every moment is important, and he mm-hmm. carries a, a whole lot on his performance, and then he's gone. You You miss him, but you don't feel like he was underused. Yeah. The one scene at the end of this section where Chiron, kind of for the first time really in the whole part, kind of speaks as plainly as he as he can and points out just the entire internal struggle and realism of the story. But yes, Juan and Teresa are like mother-father figures and inherently 
better people than his unfortunately drug addicted mother, but he's also exactly part of the problem of feeding his mother's addiction. And it's just that five minute scene just is, is that part you're talking about Mason where it's everything that is so good about the movie in terms of being realistic and heartbreakingly honest, but then not, you know, loading the movie of two hours of sad things. Yeah. Yeah. Like vulnerability is a major part of this film. And of course, like with that also the fight against being vulnerable. And I feel like Barry Jenkins really kind of found that sweet spot of letting the characters be just vulnerable enough to make the magic happen, to make the story come alive and feel very realistic and resonate at least with me and my wife when we watched together it resonated with us so heavily without it just being overdone to the point where it could almost be considered like a caricature or something like that of what vulnerability is supposed to look like and considering that's such a huge huge theme in the film to pay so much attention to that is also another thing that's really indicative of like the people who made this film knew what they were doing yeah, and I was amazed by how vulnerable Chiron is through the entire film, right? Mm-hmm. Especially for a character who has almost no dialogue mm-hmm. for most of the movie. Mm-hmm. A main character who's almost the silent protagonist is even even when he is acting his toughest, he's he's sort of radiating this this vulnerability, and there's always somebody who comes along who taps into that right yeah that really struck me especially you know because it's so hard to have a main character that that doesn't speak and that doesn't the world is sort of happening to especially Mm -hmm. in in sort of this first section to build a connection to it because i feel like a lot of times that silent protagonist is there so that the audience can project themselves onto Mm -hmm. that protagonist and here again with the fewest number of elements we have a completely fully fleshed out character yeah and i thought that that was that was really fascinating and who also like brings out this vulnerability in characters around him him finding out he's different and gay or queer was like approximately the realist presentation of that concept speaking from maybe some experience quite possibly um but it (laughs) that's exactly how it goes the people involved had lived in experiences and were telling the experiences with as objective and personal an eye as they could. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that went for every aspect of it too. Mm-hmm. You know, his, his mother's crack addiction and the need of, of Juan and later of Chiron to sell drugs or, or do illegal activities just to make a living. Right. Like, there were no villains in the movie and even the the sort of bullies and the you know traditional bad guys that that would be in this film accomplished that thing that is so hard to do as a writer in not painting them as villains but giving them a reasonable sort of drive to behave in the way that they do and to carry out their actions that was one thing that really kept me engaged with it is that like at every turn, there was no judgment, right? Right mm-hmm. about his and others' sexuality, about his mother's problems with addiction, and everything that came with that. And part of that was, I imagine, the people telling the story. But you know, it it didn't end up with the problems that so many movies coming out of Hollywood have, where they sort of get shifted and start to pick up those sorts of themes of like there's got to be a villain and there's mm-hmm. got to be something truly terrible. And there's got to be, there's got to be somebody to, to go up against. So we have this first chapter, which is Sharon and a couple of other ancillary characters at age nine ish, right? Yes. They're all in yeah. elementary school. And we have, there are a couple of characters, just a handful that, that continue through the film, I guess the the cast isn't really that large, mm-hmm. at least the cast of characters, mm-hmm. and 
I was really amazed by particularly moving from chapter one into chapter two, how well this film was casted so that the characters remained pretty recognizable, right? Yeah. Especially with the the teenagers, this secondary character, Kevin, who continues through the story. Yeah. Yeah, it shows a lot of foresight on kind of the inner workings behind the scenes. I was reading that apparently, so you have the three different actors that play uh, Chiron and Kevin in each of the acts. And the actors didn't interact with one another until after they had wrapped shooting to prevent them from imitating one another, which I found to be something that I would have never even considered. Granted, I'm also not a, a filmmaker. So, <laughs> so from a lay perspective, I was just like, Oh, that is, that is interesting, but I can totally see number one, why that's important. But number two, how important it was and how well casting for these each individual chapters was um, especially as we get into chapter two and we start to get kind of a more complete picture of Chiron who admittedly in the first chapter didn't say hardly anything and that's kind of like a running joke throughout that first chapter is Juan and Teresa kind of saying like hey if you're going to be in my house you got to talk and stuff like that you know which they later mimic in the third chapter with Kevin but in the second chapter, we start to see some of these themes of antagonism and bullying and stuff really kind of like start to rise to the top as we're met with uh, kind of like probably the first true quote unquote villain in the high school that Chiron attends, which Mason, as, as you had mentioned, you know, the idea of like the silent protagonist allowing the reader or the receiver to kind of fill those shoes I definitely felt that in this chapter, very much so. Kind of being able to really, really empathize with Chiron as he continued to kind of have these moments of silence, but also being subjected to so much external strife. I just, I found myself really, really able to kind of project myself onto him in a lot of ways. Yeah, I felt like this middle section, this sort of high school chapter, was maybe the most relatable in a lot of ways for me because it was so... High school stories are so hard to tell because it's so easy to fall into very clear stereotypes, right? Mm -hmm. And, and the, the classic battle in a high school of, like, quiet kid and bully is so played out mm -hmm. that it's, it's difficult. And how many times can we retell The Breakfast Club? <laughs> exactly right but all of those sort of stereotypes that have come up in especially american cinema have basis in like real experiences right? mm -hmm. and, and we all play at least one of those roles and usually a mix of all of those roles to some extent and i i was really amazed by how much this felt like high school you know like i went to school in a very different place in the northeast and it it you know, it was a very white high school, but there were there were things that I could relate to or that I felt like I understood based on, to some extent, based on some of the experiences that I had had mm -hmm. or the things that I had seen. And I, I thought that that was really amazing because it is, this film is very much its location, right? It, it's, it very much builds this very clear world that it exists in, right? It is oh, yeah. Miami in this particular neighborhood in this particular time. But it still does that in a way, especially in the second chapter, that, like you're saying, does it, it doesn't keep the viewer out, right? There mm -hmm. are still ways to get in, and that's almost more effective of, like, hey, this, this high school experience is, in a lot of ways, way different than mine, um, and this high school is way different than mine, but it's also not so different. Yeah. It felt too real. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, that's how I figured out I was queer. It's just that, that one friend that you have that you're like, I really like this friend. I thought I actually thought it was going to go one direction of just another direction of just like, just friends, bro. But mm -hmm. it's, 
you know, it was it's defense mechanisms you do to just survive and the 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 hazing quote unquote hazing ritual and scene is tough to watch but important to watch and yeah heartbreaking on so many levels and mm-hmm. yeah yeah you 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 understand Chiron's actions when he returns the favor oh, to yeah. the right person to the right person right I was really pleasantly surprised when when they have when Chiron and Kevin have that moment on the beach I was really afraid that it was going to turn into the classic scene of like Chiron finally showing that vulnerability to another person and then being denied it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the, the fact that it was reciprocated and reciprocated in the way that it was, was surprising, but also sort of a relief in a, in a way that mm-hmm. I imagine it would have been, had you been a character in that scene, right? Like, yeah. like I think that I actually exhaled, you know, and, and <laughs> there was this release of tension of, of all of this fear that had been building up to that point, yeah. which then makes the sort of betrayal at the end of this act oh, God. that much heavier, but also like that much more complicated, right? Mm-hmm. Because the scene ends with this, the closest thing we have to like a, a really true antagonist who in the long run doesn't, doesn't really matter right like he's he's in this section he might have been in the first section as well but like in the grand scheme of this movie he is a blip right mm-hmm. but he redirects chiron's entire life and yeah and he he gets kevin to to beat up chiron and you know whips up this crowd around them and and makes this whole scene out of it and i i was amazed by how complex that scene felt and and felt like it earned that complexity right as Mm -hmm. especially as kevin's like telling him to stay down you know don't get up and you can you can really feel like the roles that everybody has been forced into and are playing in that scene right up to the antagonist who is really a bad dude but is also like playing his role in this society yeah that was that was just really powerful yeah and that's earlier we were talking about the kind of the absence of villains. Like I don't really, I called him a villain, but this bully, like he kind of isn't in a way because ultimately the end of this chapter is kind of all about protecting oneself from not fitting in with what a black man is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of something that blends into the third act as well. And it's something that, you know, backing up a little bit to the first act, there is the scene after Juan confronts Paula, Chiron's mom, and then they have the stare down in the house. And then she shouts to him in silence. And then I'm sitting there rewinding it, trying to figure out what did she say? What did she say? But it's immediately after she kind of alluded to him possibly being queer, talking about because of the way he walks, that's why he's bullied. And then it kind of culminates in this kind of explosion of masculine aggression to combat this vulnerability and trying and using that as a means of protecting oneself from the expectation of others. In a way, this bully who, like you said, Mason, he's a blip for such a short amount of time that I don't even remember his name. Terrell. Yeah, it was Terrell. Okay. Okay. I, I was in the same boat. Yeah. I was trying to pull it. And I find it. <laughs> so if it wasn't him, it would have been somebody else. And he just happens to be that catalyst that forces Chiron to kind of confront that aspect of just being a black queer man at that point in time, where just like how Kevin throughout the second act, you know, whenever he's talking about his sexual escapades and stuff like that, it's all a show to suppress this part of themselves that is seen as undesirable or potentially dangerous in the society. I think part of why Tyrell feels so powerful too is because in in the first act, we have Juan who is sort of this like refreshing and almost amazing depiction of, of what a strong black adult man can be right Mm -hmm. who is 
simultaneously struggling with that masculinity, you know, and, and the things that he has to do to survive and also like trying to overcome that yeah. and, and trying to find a way to, to use this life that he's either made or has been handed or, or whatever. We don't really dig that far into it and, and make something better of it and make himself better for it. And then at the beginning of the second act, he's just gone. We have a, we have a line that suggests that he died and that's it. We don't we don't get a flashback. We don't really even see any like photos of him or anything. Mm-hmm. He's just gone. And so in that vacuum, the next powerful, you know, the strong black man is Tyrell. And so it, it it is this this dichotomy where they are there's a lot of overlap there, but they're two opposite forces that are sort of in in a way playing the same part, mm-hmm. you know, and and separate acts. And then in the third act, Tyrell is gone. Doesn't matter. He's he's not part of the picture anymore. And so we are left in that third act wondering who the strong black male is going to be in it. It's Sharon. Or he's trying to be. <laughs> so hard. Or is it Kevin? Right. Right. The correct answer. <laughs> yeah. Do we do we want to move on to the third part? Yeah. Yeah. So we we fast forward. Sharon has spent some time in, in prison after attacking Tyrell as sort of revenge for the fight with Kevin. And we fast forward and he's living in Atlanta doing some drug dealing. We we assume drug dealing. I don't think we ever actually get a confirmation. Well, he says he later on he admits to Kevin that he's been trapping. Right. Um I looked it up. And the best definition I could get is that it is just some legal or illegal hustle, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So we we assume that it's drug dealing, but we don't we don't ever get that clear picture. And he he's living up there. He's made a life for himself. He's doing pretty well. He has completely transformed. He's put on all of this muscle, and he's gone from this tall, lanky teenager to this this really strong person you know physically and emotionally and in a lot of ways the sort of stereotypical like black man mm-hmm. his mother is calling him to come back down to miami and and come visit and then he gets a call from kevin who he hasn't talked to in a decade and and that's finally what gets him down to miami and i thought sort of jumping off of the idea of juan being the strong male figure in the first act and Tyrone in a different way being the strong male figure in the second act third act sets up the expectation that Chiron who's who now goes by black is the strong male character and then a different example of of male strength comes in in the form of Kevin and sort of very quickly like dismantles that and you kind of see hints of it when he talks to his mom, right? Who's in rehab. And like you talked about earlier, Mason, that um, Chiron is a perpetually vulnerable character. No matter how hard he tries to put on the exterior, it just takes one little poke and you kind of see his emotional self and like how he kind of mentions that he just, he's just so as a kid that he just cries so much. He like can't feel anymore. And we just, and we find just hints of that as he it becomes clear that he's trying to unpack all the trauma that's happened to him because he's being faced with it right in his mm-hmm. face. The inescapability of trauma is a very big part of the third act as well. It kind of goes into the diner scene where Ash Aron meets Kevin, who's actually, you know, who's the one who gave him the nickname Black, who's the one who helped give him this ulterior persona that he winds up embodying. As he goes and he sits down and starts to kind of slowly dissolve himself into Kevin's life, it winds up creating this moment that becomes too real, almost to the point where at least I felt that it would be too much for Chiron. But then eventually moves to a place where he can't leave. I think like probably that moment was whenever Kevin shows him the song. 
mm-hmm. which was uh, Hello Stranger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, you know, speaking of the soundtrack, you know, this is like one of maybe less than five instances where we actually have something that wasn't kind of like an or- orchestral composition made specifically for this film. And it's just kind of cements this longing that Sharon has to face. Ultimately, this whole movie is kind of like a love story, but not in like a traditional sense. It's about Chiron trying to find love and trying to find somebody to be on his side and to accept him for who he is throughout the entire runtime. And while he's had like hints and glimmers of it, it's always been tinged with this kind of flaw as he gets to the end, which is kind of like the ultimate iteration of that, this love that has this probably the biggest flaw at least directly towards him he's kind of faced with this inescapable moment where he has to really make the decision to accept that in a way that he hasn't allowed himself to before which is just it's just beautiful yeah and it happens with him being presented with kevin's life which has early on so many parallels to his right kevin also goes off to prison and 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 does time and while he's there he starts cooking and discovers that he enjoys it right and and when he goes back into the world that's what he does and and he sort of accidentally has a family and while that isn't what he wants like you know his his kid is is kind of a lifesaver for him it's sort of presented and Mm -hmm. and so he has all of these things that on the surface are not so different than chiron's experience right who he also goes to prison and he also finds a job there in a different way right and goes out and does really well with it and builds a life around that but it it you know so it, it is it is a similar path but it comes out very differently and and you get the at least i got the feeling that sitting there in that diner hearing kevin's life and then like just coming clean about his there's a sense that like chiron sees some of those parallels but it's almost like for the first time in his life all of these things that have felt very predestined Mm -hmm. you know are suddenly called into question and it's all done with very quick bits of conversation yeah and with somebody who i think really importantly and openly doesn't accept that that is just how life is Mm -hmm. i really appreciated that the movie ended the way it did i was kind of worried there would be like some sort of like sex scene or like consummating between kevin and chiron but it it's like they everyone recognizes that chiron is too broken and too raw of a person to kind of put himself out there in that way and right in the very last shot we get is of Chiron as himself when he's very young standing on a beach under the moon and it it ties like well why is this why is this um movie named moonlight and there's a quote from one one right earlier about how black skin looks almost blue in the moonlight but it's more than anything right of a motif of vulnerability Mm-hmm. Like there's many several moments on the beach in the moonlight that are indicators of just Chiron and his most vulnerable and most open that we are allowed to see. Yeah. And then also in that same context, when Juan says that, he says it kind of in the context of black people were the first people on the earth. Anywhere you go, you'll 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 find you'll find black people. And but then also don't let anybody tell you who to be. You have to figure that out for yourself. And so this is like the culmination of him, of all, yeah, of all those moments where he's struggling to find out who he is in a world that doesn't want to accept him for who he is. And he finds that in Kevin who, you know, the last shot of them together is just Kevin just stroking his head. And it's just like the most tender like oh like oh man it was just so such a great way to kind of put like you know the period on the sentence that is their relationship 
And it's like all these like little bits that couldn't, can only be done in film where they show all these things, but they don't tell us, you know, they don't tell us that Kevin and Chiron are living these kind of mirror lives that also overlap in all these ways, but they also don't tell us that Chiron's mom is in rehab. They show it to us because Chiron is wearing a visitor's tag that says rehab clinic on it. And it's allows us as the viewers to kind of fill in all these gaps and make all these connections ourselves. So it's, it's like letting us in, but also allowing us to kind of piece the things together and make a greater story out of what's already a great story that's being told. Right. And that point about it being kind of so perfect for film makes me wonder a little bit about the source material, right? Mm -hmm. Which is from Terrell Alvin McCraney's own unreleased play that he wrote. So Mm -hmm. I really kind of wonder how this like story plays out. I read a little bit like apparently the three parts are told in the play simultaneously Mm -hmm. and that we're unaware of who these characters are until about midpoint that it is the same character. But I really do wonder because it feels on the, on the surface, it feels almost like not enough story maybe, but it feels like a really accurate portrayal of how like trauma kind of affects you. There's just Mm -hmm. big moments in your life that kind of reverberate through the rest of your life and you kind of reach multiple crossroads and the rest of life is just almost numb trying to deal with it Mm -hmm. yeah and that's real life is always has unanswered questions yeah you're right i i feel like that also is kind of what makes at least with made this film resonate so much with me is that there are all these things that kind of have a little question mark next to them but it's not i wouldn't necessarily call them like a plot hole or anything it's just all these unanswered questions like things that i think would be nice to know but you know, maybe the act of me as a viewer wondering about them makes it that much better. Mm -hmm. It lets you as the viewer also sort of reflect on the questions that you feel need to be answered Mm -hmm. and the, the questions that you try to answer yourself. So much of this film isn't on the film, right? So much of it is implied. And I feel like it really demands of you to, figure it out on your own, right? And and sort of make what you need to make of it. Mm-hmm. But it also demands this level of honesty, I think through itself being incredibly honest and being incredibly sort of frank, that it, it almost left me like feeling like I had a higher expectation from myself to really consider why I was landing in the places that I landed with different characters and different ideas and mm-hmm. like, wondering where my preconceptions about who, what, where, and why happen, right? Yeah. Because the film was incredibly, even even in its really reduced view and, and its minimal presentation, it was, it didn't hide anything from me, it, mm-hmm. you know? I was with you, Sean. I was really happy that it didn't end in the sort of traditional consummation mm-hmm. of the relationship. Mm-hmm. And I think it really underlined the goal of that relationship and sort of, I don't know, for lack of a better term, like heteronormative yeah. romantic drama, right? Like the goal is for boy and girl to either get together, either implied or very clear, or have it fall apart and then they go and they find their own things. And like the goal of the romance in this movie was not the romance itself. It was for the characters to become what they couldn't be on their own, mm-hmm. particularly Chiron. But I think that that in a lot of ways went, you know, for Kevin as well. Yeah. yeah. And, and so to have it end with the incredibly tender moment of Chiron being vulnerable with somebody for the first time and it being the only man he has ever been vulnerable at that level with, like that was that was the the goal all along of of this love story. It wasn't like it wasn't a relationship, right? It wasn't like 
boy gets girl, mm-hmm. right? Or boy, boy gets, gets boy. boy. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was, at the risk of sounding too corny, it was, you know, boy gets himself. Maybe. Hopefully. Yeah. Hopefully. He gets one step closer to that. You bring up a great point that from oh, 99% of the queer movies I've seen, when when they're quote-unquote ending happy, also just follow these really like heteronormative, performative, and then we have sex and we fall in love. Yay! Or it's, we can't be gay, so black trauma and one of us has to die. Mm-hmm. And this movie is finally not either of those two paths, which is a miracle and kind of sad that that's still so rare. <laughs> <laughs> and that it is the lowest grossing film to ever win best picture. I think besides Hurt Locker or like, yeah, it's like, yeah. Yeah. Yay! <laughs> yeah. So this very important story that nobody went to see. <laughs> yeah. But it allowed Barry Jenkins to make if Bill Street could talk. Right. And he's in line to make a Disney movie. Ugh. Oh yeah. A Mufasa prequel? Oh, good lord. And also, he's dating Lulu Wang, so apparently that household is just sensitive, thoughtful filmmaking all around. (laughs) I saw that. I was like, okay, cool. Cool. (laughs) Goals. Yeah. One of the reasons that made me initially want to watch this movie was the fact that it won Oscar for Best Picture. Right. And that's also something that I wanted to talk about was kind of like the barometer for Oscars. The Oscars got delayed this year, and I know that we'll eventually talk about it at some point in the future. <laughs> but, you know, this film was nominated for a whole slew of Oscars. It won five. Uh, Marshall Ali won one uh, Oscar for Best Screenplay, Best Picture. And I find it interesting that this was also around the time when we were dealing with the Oscars so white incident, right? Wasn't that like a couple years before yeah. or it was a couple years before and it was really coming to a head. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't watched a lot of the other pictures that were nominated that year mm-hmm. for best picture, but I know that there's like, there's kind of like this implied intellectualism that comes with Oscar films and stuff. It's kind of like what we talked about with, with Zach you know, kind of like this implied intellectualism that comes with classical music. And I feel like the same can be said for Oscar movies or Oscar bait movies. But at the same time, I feel like this film kind of played to a lot of those characteristics that we would find in quote unquote art house, quote unquote Oscar worthy movies without trying too hard to do so. Cause you know, there's plenty of movies out there that are definitely guilty of doing that. The movie is beautifully shot, lots of long shots, huge sweeping character developments that are from powerful actors. But I feel like it did such a great job of not falling into that trap of trying to be an Oscar film. Because it felt so genuine, right? Yeah. Yeah. I I was just going to, unlike so many, I'm looking at the list of, best picture winners and so many of them especially before this movie i don't want to like paint this film as as the turning point or anything there was a lot going on and and continues to go on around that but particularly before this film so many of them were classic oscar bait you know with almost purely white casts and you're both right like this this movie does not this movie feels it feels like an a24 picture Mm -hmm. yes right like Oh, like yeah. It is, it is very much that like indie art house like film making for the sake of filmmaking, mm-hmm. and it at no point feels like it has those goals of awards. Right, you could see it like performing well at Sundance or something, but it's not that it's not Oscar material. It doesn't feel like the kind of movie that wins an Oscar because it's too good. You know, mm-hmm. it is good in the it's not good in the right ways. It's it's not good in the ways that the king's speech was, right? Which <laughs> was a very different kind. Of, I, you know, uh, that one was okay. I, it's not good in the ways I enjoyed it. Spotlight, yeah, yeah. Spotlight was great. Or the oh, yeah. Birdman or Birdman, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and right. In many ways, La La Land is the stereotypical choice 
because it is a love letter to movies, uh, particularly old movies which Hollywood still cannot like get off jerking off to. It's like ah musicals, <laughs> but like if like I did watch La La Land and comparing the two, it, Moonlight just has is so much better on a, like a technical and storytelling way and so much more focused in what it's trying to do, which might work against it because like best picture often feels like it needs to be big and broad in some sort of way. It needs to quote unquote, make a big statement in all capital letters, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. it, it didn't. And it won. Who knows what, what that technical issue is. It it is a little like suspicious just because like, can you do that? Right. You're the Oscars. (laughs) There was a Vox explainer video about yeah. it, about typefaces are important, mm-hmm. but it's tough, right? Because this is one of those situations that is so ripe for conspiracy, right? Mm-hmm. And it would be so easy for it to like actually be from malice on the part of someone, and it could be. But it's also like, I'd, I wonder if it says more about the sort of movies that reach that caliber that like, that that come up for best picture like if another movie had ended up in that envelope would it have really felt any better right mm-hmm. like la la land is is problematic because it is la la land and because it is like the epitome of like white actor led best picture in america mm-hmm. but i don't i can't think of another movie that came out in 2016 that would have felt any better you know, that would have like been in the running for best picture and would have felt any better in that sort of switch up. Right. Yeah. I liked Arrival a lot. <laughs> Arrival was great. Yeah. But it would have also been like, you know, yeah. white sci fi beating out, you know, genuine black stories, you know, like, mm-hmm. and we'll never know for sure. Yep. But, you know, hire designers, hire people who know how type works. You'd think they would with all this budget that they allegedly have. <laughs> Those are always the last people hired, right? Are the, mm-hmm. are the designers and the technical writers and because everybody has access to InDesign now, you know? So. Yeah, I can do it. Psh, easy enough. Yeah, I can do it. We'll get the intern to do yeah. it. Yeah, Comic Sans. Yeah. Here we go. <laughs> Papyrus, thank you very much. <laughs> Papyrus. <laughs> I know what you did. Yes. (laughs) Easily my favorite SNL skit of all time. And I was glad we kind of watched it out of time, out of the context of everyone else was watching and raving about it. So Mm -hmm. we could hopefully have a more objective lens because it was one of those movies that were just every critic went, yes, good, it good, Mm -hmm. top 10, please like, except for one bitch. Um, <laughs> always one. No, it, I read this article was by some British lady who said, "Oh, and her, which is just like mm, white white woman talking about black stories." This is she a, was a Karen before Karens were a thing, probably. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it it it. Oh, God, I need to find it because the actual quote is just insane. Uh, I wrote that the film story had been told countless times against countless backdrops, and the film was not relevant to a predominantly straight white middle class audience. Okay, what is your point, bitch? It falls into that thing that I often want to walk through the street screaming that every story is not for you, and every story is not about you, and you are not everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, so what if it's not about your life? Isn't that kind of the point? Yeah. <laughs> It doesn't have to be relevant to you. Mm-hmm. They would have made a movie about that that woman if her life was so fantastic. You know? <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> right. She would have had best picture. Yep. <laughs> she would have taken it from a, a movie about minorities. I don't I don't know this person. I feel like we are in danger of <laughs> I don't know. We're uh, just the podcast is just gonna be hot takes from here on out. <laughs> Just aggressively hot, hot takes. Just burning the internet alive. Yep. About people we don't know. Right. <laughs> right. Is that how we get an audience? Yeah. We can do it. I believe in us. A podcast for the modern internet, for real. Yep. Speaking of British people, Naomi Harris oh. in this film. 
phenomenal. And I feel bad because I don't, I don't know her from good movies, right? Like the first thing I think of when I think of Naomi Harris is the Bond film. She's the new money penny. Pirates of the Caribbean. Pirates of the Caribbean. 28 days later, she was in that. Okay. And, and so it's funny, right? Because she, she's really fantastic. I like her a lot as Money Penny. I think that she's a really fun approach in a sort of soft reboot to a franchise where a lot of the new approaches don't quite work, right? right? I have so many opinions on James Bond and we should probably watch a Bond movie at some point. But so seeing her in this movie where she is complete a completely different character than what I immediately recognize her as was really great. And also a completely different character from start to finish. Yes. Yes. And she shot her scenes in like two weeks. Yeah, three days. Three days. Yeah. Yeah. Two weeks. Amateurs shooting their stuff in two weeks. Come on. (laughs) Come on. I just really needed to like highlight her performance because it is so powerful and it is so nuanced. She is just phenomenal in playing the same character in three very different ways without ever feeling like she's falling into that stereotypical trap. She remains complex and Mm -hmm. even at her worst is sympathetic and very powerful. Yeah. Like I was just thinking, um, I had never, like I came into this film, not really knowing anything about it, except I watched a, a documentary about, black filmmakers and Barry Jenkins was on there being interviewed about his work for Moonlight as well as uh, if Bill Street could talk. And so they played a little clip of, of the film. And so it was completely out of context. And it was the part where Chiron comes home and she asks him for money. Oh God. Yeah. And so I went into this film knowing that that is where she gets to. But the first time we see her in the film, she's the protector. She is the strong black woman, the strong black uh, role model who doesn't give him TV time and tells him to read a book, which is, you know, such like a pure and like great parenting thing to do. And then next thing we see, she is going into the throes of addiction, but in a, such a subtle way that I kind of questioned it until Juan confronted her. And it's another one of those things where it's just like, very similar to Chunking Express, but also completely different, is that there's all these things that we just kind of aren't let in on, but we're given like just enough breadcrumbs to kind of pick up the pieces. <laughs> but like it's also important if we if we don't pick up all of them. Right. Like I was I was reading that apparently in the second chapter she had turned to prostitution potentially, but I didn't catch that while I was watching the film. But at the same time whether that was true or not, it wasn't important to my interpretation of Chiron's story, you know? So it's just like the film is just full of that. And it's one of those things that like I immediately, once I stopped it and once I like started doing my homework, I was like, I just, I just need to watch this again. I just need to sit down and watch it again. One of the like first moments where I felt like a real gut punch was, so he, he comes home and she tells him no TV time, you know, go find something to read. And then like minutes later, he in the film, he comes home and the TV's gone. Oh, I missed that. Yeah. And it's just for a moment, he just looks where the TV was. And that's like one of our first, at, at least from what I saw, it was one of the first instances where I realized, like, oh no, oh no, she has a serious. Problem. Oh, wow. I can't believe I missed that. Yeah. And it's, it's just, it is just that extra level of just brutal realism where you know she 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 says no tv time in the way you know and being a good parent and then her own struggles take that away from him permanently mm-hmm. you brought up chunking express and you know i just can't help as we continue our film club to like compare inevitably and in many Mm -hmm. ways right they're trying to achieve the same scale of like a smaller story told in parts but filmed relatively quickly right yeah but this 
this one just feels like it doesn't waste anything and is just more cogent in telling a story, honestly, than Chunking Express, and thereby is more effective in finding that balance between challenging us and also just telling us a story that makes sense. Yeah. I feel much more rewarded yeah. for watching this film than I do Chunking Express. Sorry. Won't cry right. It didn't frustrate me. <laughs> one thing. It's also a lot more beautiful, right? Mm. It is it is just from a visual standpoint, it is a beautiful film. It is shot beautifully. It is referencing a number of things. We talked before we started recording about the color choices. Each each scene is is shot based on a different film stock to sort of accentuate different colors and do different things to skin tones and you know make it warmer or cooler there's some history there that is i think really important in the history of color film there is i don't i don't know that controversy is the right word it is something more malicious than that but there's a long history of film production right film stock production not being idealized for black and brown skin tones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of Vox, there's a really excellent Fox video on it. Um, there have been a couple books written about it. And Filmstock only became really effective at rendering particularly black skin tones when furniture salespeople were complaining about how their furniture looked in catalogs. Oh, wow. So film was balanced so that it would reproduce the colors of wood more accurately and sort of by accident it made black skin tones better cool thanks capitalism right (laughs) and so the counterpoint that always comes up to that is well you know like photography is a light-based medium and white skin produces more light and so it's inherently easier to photograph and okay fine there's a physics argument for that, especially in black and white film. But we figured out color photography almost immediately. As soon as we had, you know, reproducible film, we had, even before that, we, you know, there was a Russian photographer who had figured out how to do three-channel photography. And nobody bothered to figure it out for black skin until the 1970s. And so the all this is to say, really carefully choosing film stocks. This film was shot digitally, but it was shot on Cinescope lenses, which are kind of classic amorphic lens series and kind of reference like classic documentary filmmaking. They are very sharp in the center a lot of times and have this real beautiful vignette mm. where it gets soft around the edges and, and lens a, a sort of atmosphere that way. But then particularly like processing the digital raw in a way that referenced classic film stock to tell the story of a black character was like having that knowledge of, of film history was just like additionally powerful, mm-hmm. especially because a lot of the, the film stocks that they chose, they chose a, a Fuji and Agfa and a Kodak. And they were chosen specifically so that they would highlight, among other things, the skin tones of, of these characters. And it is so nitty-gritty, like, art nerd, photo nerd stuff, mm-hmm. but it's so powerful. It made me so excited. <laughs> yeah, it just, it just lends another level of understanding and appreciation, much like we've discussed in other instances where, you know, like, yeah, they're creating this film for an audience, but there's also going to be a subsection of the audience that has this window into this history that goes behind some of the nuts and bolts that have made certain things happen, but have also subjected uh, people of color and actors of color into the subordinate roles just via physics or color correction or whatever by having that little bit of extra little bit there it just allows somebody with that history to just make that much of a deeper connection to kind of the underlying motifs that go behind it unlike what we've experienced in some other things (laughs) 
where it's just like it's only appealing to that small subsection. This is just like a right. like a, a little Easter egg, a little bonus, but that just helps drive that point home. It's all in the in the service of telling that greater narrative. It's no Sam Studios. Well, actually, did I stutter?